All right, sweet. So since Dave's gone, guys, we, uh, we have a guest speaker tonight. It is uh, one of Dave's um, former students and a good friend of his. Uh, he went to school of ministry, graduated this year, and uh, he's from uh, Calvary Chapel LAX. So uh, we got uh, Joseph Kless right here. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bro. Good evening, church. Today we're going to be looking at Zechariah 3. So let me go ahead and pray first. Father God, you reign supreme in our lives, and not just in our lives, but over all of mankind. And you've done it past, present, and future for all of time. And just want to thank you, Lord God, and Father, that you would even consider us worthy to be in your presence, and even more so to invite us into your service because sometimes we're just flawed creatures and we get dirty, Lord. But yet you clothe us with righteousness because of Jesus. And I ask tonight that your word would come forth to us and just cleanse us and wash over us again and make us worthy of the calling to which you've called us as men and women of your kingdom. I just ask this, Papa, in the name of Jesus, the Father and the Spirit. Amen. Well, Zechariah is one of the prophets, and he gets me to thinking about a movie from the 1990s that was a story about this mad scientist called Doc Brown, and he took this teenager kid on a bunch of travels through time in a time machine that they made out of a DeLorean. And he had a way of seeing like the past, present, and the future all at the same time. So the second of the trilogy is my favorite, Back to the Future 2, because he almost even runs into himself from the previous movie, and he has a, an outlook of this great scope of time, which made me think of what Zechariah is seeing. And it's interesting, too, because Zechariah, when he was called into God's service out of Babylon, he was about the same age as Marty McFly was in the movie. And I think some of you out here might have teenagers tonight or be a teenager. And that's about the age that Zechariah has when he was called into service. And Zechariah was able to look at things only to see them from God's perspective. And what he was able to see was how God reigns with authority in justice and in mercy. So those are the aspects that we're going to be looking at tonight, how God's authority reigns with justice and with mercy. So let's go ahead and read, or I'll read to you Zechariah, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And if you don't know where Zechariah is in your Bibles, it's going to be two books to the left of the New Testament. So if you get to Matthew and turn two books backward, you'll find Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing there at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand I picked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have taken away your iniquity from you, 
and will clothe you with festival robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house and will also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So just to give you a little background of what's going on, we're now looking at the divided kingdom. Okay, so uh, the nation of the Jews have been, has been divided in two. You have J um, Israel up to the north. You have Judah down in the south. Um, Assyria has come along and conquered Israel to the north. Does anyone have an idea what year that might be roughly? I'm looking to the one person in the room who I know knows the answer. <laughs> it was, it was um, 722 B.C., okay? And then after that, we've got Judah um, down here to the south, and then Babylon conquers Assyria and then comes in and conquers Judah. Anyone know what year that happened? <laughs> I'm looking to my fellow school of ministry students. <laughs> It was about um, 586 B.C., so it was almost a couple hundred years difference there. Okay, so what happens next now is that Persia is going to come in and conquer Babylon and set up some new kings. Okay, and these new kings, uh, they're named uh, Cyrus and Darius, and they said, what are we going to do with these Jews? We don't need him here anymore. Why don't we just invite them to go back home? And because they'd already been 70 years in captivity in Babylon. So they, they let those Jews who want to go back to their homeland do so. The majority of them, because they've established new lives up here in Babylon, really decide not to leave. So when we're looking at Zechariah, this is at the end of Daniel's reign in Babylon. If you remember how Daniel was a prophet in Babylon, well, that's kind of come to an end when Babylon fell. And if you remember... Daniel had, or King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon had a vision of the statue with the head of gold and the, the shoulders of silver and the torso of brass. Well, that's each of these three kingdoms that I was just talking about, one conquering after another. Um, eventually, Greece will come in and conquer Persia, but we're right now at Persia's reign as a superpower in the world. And so... Joshua is one of the young men who decides to go back to Jerusalem, feeling the call of God to rebuild the temple. He comes from a priestly line, and he's a prophet. He's what we call a, a minor prophet. Um, one of his contemporaries is also Haggai. And the term minor prophet doesn't mean that he was less important than any of the other prophets, but just that he wrote fewer books 
about his vision. So it's smaller chapters that we have from our minor prophets as opposed to the, the bigger ones who wrote large volumes and had many, many visions like Isaiah. So what we're looking at now through Zechariah's, Zechariah's eyes will be four aspects of his observations, which are that, what are they? <laughs> that accusation will come, that adjustment will come, that appointment will come, and that a savior will come. So we'll look at each of these individually. First off, accusation will come. Verse 1, Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Now the Lord's enemies will always want to attack the work of the priest. And we have this scene that Zechariah is seeing in a vision of Joshua the priest. So Zechariah has come back to Jerusalem as a prophet. Joshua has come back as high priest. And another man named Zerubbabel has come back. So these are like the three spiritual heads who are now trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And he sees a vision of Joshua the high priest being accused by Satan in God's courts. And that word Satan, we usually think of, oh, that's the devil, that's his, his formal name is Satan. But actually, no, the word Satan just means the adversary. And in this case, you'll find it several times used in the Old Testament, specifically referring to God's adversary. So we can read it as, here is the adversary of God accusing the high priest. Now, the angel of the Lord is commonly accepted as being the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that angel means messenger, so it means the messenger of the Most High God. And the reason why um, scholars and theologians believe that's referring to Jesus Christ is because as we're going to see in verses 4 and verses 8, that this angel forgives the sin of Joshua and forgives the sin of the nation. And the only entity that has the right to forgive, the ability to remove sin, is God. So these are actually deity scriptures. And also, if you look elsewhere, you'll find the angel of the Lord throughout scripture, especially in the Old, well, actually only in the Old Testament. Um, it's used by I, Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's uh, used by Moses a lot in the early books, in the Pentateuch, when uh, the angel of the Lord visits Abraham, visits Sarah, visits Hagar. We're, be we're believing that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now, the adversary accuses to hinder authority. Okay, he's standing at the right hand, the right hand of authority, to accuse the priest, to accuse God's work, and to stop that work from going on. What's interesting here is that word standing. I thought it meant, okay, yeah, you know, he's... We got Joshua standing there before God, and it's like, no, it means ministry. So what we're seeing is that Joshua has come to minister to accomplish God's work in, in Judah at this time, and Joshua is doing his ministry, and the devil's right there alongside of him doing his ministry. He's standing to thwart that work. And nobody's lying down here. Everybody's doing their job, and there's a conflict that, that arises. Here the man is accused before God's presence in God's courts. It's almost like a courtroom scene. So can someone here tell me the name of 
another man of God who was accused in God's heavenly courts? Right, Job. So we have a very similar situation where Satan has access to God's courts and asks for authority to accuse God's people and God's servants. And in the same way, we're seeing that Joshua is being accused of being sinful and unworthy of being able to hold the post that God has called him to. So these are the same charges coming against him. And I don't know if in your lives you've heard that same voice accusing you when you've gone about God's service, but I do. Um, And I'll be just really honest with you. A lot of people in their salvation have very clear delineators when they became Christians and when their repentance came about to give their lives to the Lord. For me, I'm always a bit ashamed because I struggled with sexual immorality even after being a Christian, after being born again. And there are certain times where that shame just kind of overwhelms me and the devil come and accuses me with that. I'll drive through certain parts of town where I was looking for sin or I'll drive by a building where I took out a date or maybe a lounge where I met somebody and committed acts unworthy to even speak about. And the devil wants to be right there to remind me of all those things. And sometimes even that thought of accusation appeals to my pride, thinking I'm somebody, or thinking that maybe my sin isn't as bad as it, as it really is. But I have to remind myself that I am no less a sinner today than I was before, and it's only by the grace of God that he's forgiven me. And I can even use that information that the devil wants to spew at me to to keep myself in my place. Um, But the devil's there, and he's in Zechariah's ears too, and he's trying to accuse God's justice. He's trying to get God's justice to work against mankind. Now, the reason I'm referring to this and I'm accounting ourselves in there with Joshua is because if you look at uh, Revelation 12.10, it, it gives us the same scene again, only it's us up there in heaven with, with God, where it says, um, and now salvation, that's Revelation 12.10, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser, of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before God day and night. That's the devil accusing all the saints past, present, and to come, including us. And what's wonderful about that is is God silences him, that even though that the devil is there and he brings up all our faults before God, all our failures before God, trying to get us to grow discouraged to abandon the building that God would have us do, the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is standing there and he silences those accusations by raising his nail-scarred hand and saying, no, silence. It's by the command of his voice. So how does God do that? Let's look at verse two. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, 
the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you? Is this not a brand picked, plucked from the fire? Now, God's forgiveness is so timeless. So Satan has no grounds to condemn us because of Romans 8.1. There's no longer any condemnation. And Christ took away the punishment that was justly due us by putting our sins on the cross. He paid that debt. And there's another scripture I just want to have you turn to and read along with me because it's so powerful. It's Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Let me read it to you. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you, being dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive altogether with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirement, that's the law, that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Um, Colossians is another great chapter, or another great book if you ever want to read it. It talks about this cosmic Christ and everything that he's done for mankind in the similar way that Zechariah is going to talk about everything that the Messiah is going to come to do for, for mankind. So we see the, the prophecy in one chapter. We see the fulfillment in the other chapter. Now, whenever I get to verse 2 and I was doing the study, I would always start crying because I thought of myself as this firebrand plucked from the fire, and I thought, wow, the God of all the universe would want to defend me. He'd want to care for me and just touches my heart. And then, then I had to do some further study, and I found out that it really wasn't talking about me at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> because when I, I looked it up in Hebrew, the, the structure of the word sentence, it reads out something more like this. Satan, you be rebuked by the Lord who this Jerusalem, a firebrand, he has chosen. So actually that firebrand is, is Jerusalem itself. And when reading scripture and studying scripture, we know that the first thing you always have to do is to take it literally. We don't want to use replacement theology to put ourselves necessarily in the story or have the church replace Israel in the story. We need to take the word for what it says literally. So it's literally saying, Jerusalem, you're a firebrand, but I plucked you out. I chose you. And what's really interesting here is that that word firebrand can be translated two different ways. One of them is the smoldering end of a stick. So like, you know, when you go on a camping trip and you have that stick and you, you make marshmallows and then you pull the marshmallow off and then eventually you have to burn the stick because it's, it's smoldering at the end and it's no good anymore. Well, that's what it's saying Jerusalem is. Jerusalem is just like this smoldering burnt end of a stick that I, that um, I've, I've plucked you out of Babylon, where you've been there, you've forgotten your language, you've forgotten the Jewish traditions, you're now speaking um, um, a different language, you've lost some of your Hebrew, you don't even know what the priestly role is in anymore, you, you stink and you smell smoky with the corruption of Babylon, so you're kind of like this stick that's still smoking now we're back here in Jerusalem and we're trying to rebuild something out of you. We're trying to restore the promises of God to you as they were meant to be. So it's like this smoldering stick that all the world will consider good for nothing. And that's, that's the, the near vision 
okay, I want to talk to you about prophecy, about near vision and far vision, because often when these prophets were speaking, they would see something in the future. Their automatic interpretation, even like the um, apostles at the time of Jesus, they took everything of what Jesus was saying as being literal, that he's coming to fulfill the kingdom right now and take over the Romans, and yay, we're going to have build our own Christian empire. Um, but the way prophets saw things was that they, they thought it was for their immediate, or their immediate future, their present, which would be our past. And when I talk about the past, I'm referring to their immediate future. I'll be using the word past, present, and future a lot. So imagine a prophet, he's seeing this mountain peak. That's what the prophecy is. This is the vision that God is showing him. But right behind that, there's this other higher mountain peak, okay? And so he's seeing two things at one time, and he's thinking that both of these summits are going to be one event at one time. So that's the way he writes them. As a matter of fact, Zechariah at this time when he had his visions and wrote this book, he actually saw, thought that Zerubbabel was going to become the Messiah. And Zerubbabel was the governor at the time. He thought he was going to become king because he was from the line of David. He'd come out of Babylon. He was helping to restore Jerusalem and Judah. But as we know, Zerubbabel was not the Messiah. But that was that first peak he was looking at. He didn't realize that the second peak behind it had a large time gap, a large valley of time in between those two peaks. And that's the time between the original prophecy and most of this in Zechariah is going to be the messianic prophecy of end times and the apocalypse. And that present period in between is the time that we're living in. Some of the prophecy has been fulfilled prior to our time, Jesus is coming. Some of it has yet to be fulfilled with Jesus' second coming. Now that doesn't exclude the fact that God could also consider us a firebrand like in my original thoughts that I had because with Joshua standing there, he is the priest for the nation, so he's representing all the people. And we could consider it that he's also represented of us as God's people, also being accused by the devil, also being a firebrand that God plucked out. I don't know about you, but God plucked me out with smoky clothes from the situations I was in. So I have some smoky stick background in myself as well, and possibly some of you too. But the neat thing is that God chose us. He chose Jerusalem. He wanted Jerusalem. It was never his intent that they have to be carried away to Assyria and Babylon and, and be judged and punished by the harshness, but they didn't turn from their sin, so that was the only way he could wake them up. He always wanted them to be a nation for the nations. He always wanted them to be a royal priesthood to serve all of mankind. Now, this word rebuke is really interesting, too, because it means to check or to stop. So it's like, nope, you're not going to go there, Satan. No, I'm not going to hear that accusation against my priest. And it also has that sense of declaring it false. Nope, that's not true anymore because I've covered that man with my blood, because I've called that man into my service. So we see already that accusation has come. And I can promise you too, if you're a Christian and you're sitting in this room, in your lives, accusation will come. 
and the state of the world today and the politics that we have today, it's probably going to increase the accusation against the church. But what is the condition of mankind? Okay, Joshua's there in the courts of God. He's got a problem. Read verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. It was standing before the angel. Who remembers another prophet who was standing in the courts of God and felt that he was unworthy and unclean? Yeah, Isaiah. What did it say about Isaiah? What does Isaiah say? He realizes the holiness of God. He says, whoa, whoa, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. So he had the same revelation, kind of like Zechariah. I ain't no good for this deal, God, whatever you're laying on my shoulders. But God comes in and says, hey, no, here, let this holy coal touch your lips. I'm going to anoint you, free you, forgive you, remove that iniquity from you. And he called them into service. There's a lot of really interesting parallels. We can't get into them tonight. I may point out one or two between Isaiah and Zechariah. So, accusation will come. Adjustment will come. So now we're going to look at the adjustment that needs to come. This word of being clothed in filthy garments, it has the sense of um, being encrusted with excrement. And then on top of that, it's being filled with vomit. This is, this is the Hebrew translation of the word. So filthy means encrusted with excrement and filled with vomit. And he's standing as a priest before the Lord, which is a contradiction. And yet sometimes it can remind us, it can remind me uh, of my own life when I'm in sin. I don't think my sin is as bad as it really is. I don't think my sin is as bad as God thinks it is. And there I am trying to lift up holy hands and have fellowship with God, and I stink like a toilet. That's the image that Zechariah is creating for us right now. We have no righteousness of our own. We have no right on our own to stand before God. And yet the accuser is going to parade all our faults before God. But 1 John 2, 1 we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who wipes away our unclean, uncleanliness. Now Satan is going to try to raise this issue over and over with us again, and Jesus is always going to raise that nailed, scarred hand to defend us. So do we think we can do anything without God? No, but God's authority is just. So I have to change my casual attitude. So getting back to past, present, and future. So what Zechariah is seeing is that near mountain peak, 70 years without service to God, and now I'm called as a priest to do something, and I have no idea what I'm doing. The future is that Israel, one day, is going to be called out of her worldly corruption in the same way that these um, refugees were called out of Babylon. Because right now, she doesn't know the Lord but she still has a priestly service to fulfill before God in the end times. And then in the present, that area in between, that's sometimes us. 
That's me standing there with my hands raised, but with sin in my heart. You smell that? Is that me? Or is that you? I, I can't tell, but God knows. So, we've looked at the accusation. Now let's look at the adjustment. Who here has ever changed a diaper or been a primary caregiver to someone else? Wow, lots of you. Almost everybody. Not quite. Um, I've never changed it. Yes, I have changed diapers now I think about it. Oh, my gosh. Um, but I have been my mom's primary caregiver. She had colon cancer, and every morning for nine months, I had to um, clean out her colon. I needed to flush it out through you know, the medical process. And about three times a day, I would change all of her bed sheets. Verse 4. And then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. What's interesting about this word removed is it means to cut away. It means to actually cut off the garments because they're so bad, you just can't undress yourself from them. And this is a work that in removing our unrighteousness and our sin that only God can do. Only God can cut that away. Only God can cut our hearts and give us hearts of flesh and write his laws upon them. I was discussing this with um, another brother once, and he told me he once had to cut away the diaper off of his baby daughter because it was so filthy there wasn't any other way to get it off her without making a mess of themselves in the whole room. So this is the image we have of, of God wanting to cut this away. And what's interesting here about this word iniquity, I always translated that as sin, but I found out that it means three things. It means the sin and the crime that you've committed. Okay? Then it means the depression and the feeling you have knowing that you've done wrong and being guilt-laden over it. And then it means knowing that's a, that's a, there is a certain righteous punishment that's due you that is about to befall you because you committed the crime. So that's the word iniquity. It means the sin, the guilt, and the punishment all kind of rolled up into one. So here we have Joshua in his time, and he's saying, my leadership needs to repent. I need to repent as a priest. In the future, we have Israel restored during the millennium to all her lost covenants. And then in between the present, it's where we're living at day to day. Does our outside agree with our inside? Because that's the definition of hypocrisy. It's having and doing actions different on the outside than what I'm really thinking on the inside and who I really am and hiding on the inside. Our integrity before God is that our thoughts and our heart matches our actions on the outside. Something else that we see in the prophecy here is that, and, and um, Zechariah knew this, that when he's looking at Joshua for their immediate future, 
he's also seeing a type of Christ. Now, they believed that the Messiah was coming. That's why he thought Zerubbabel might actually be the Messiah. But we're, he's looking at Joshua as a type of the coming Messiah. So what's the end game? What's the role of our, our observer here? Zachar, from Zechariah's point of view, let's look at verse 5. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now we're seeing that appointment is coming. He's been cleansed. He's being renewed to his priestly role. And this is so cool. Zechariah goes, hey, God, wait, there's something missing. What? Zechariah, even though he was in Babylon, he'd been a good priest because he was familiar with what, with what is written in Isaiah, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, and Ezekiel that the priest puts on his, his turban that was missing. And this one isn't just any particular turban. The way the word works out here, it's that the turban that was saved for the Day of Atonement, um, where once a year the, the priest entered into the Holy of Holies to approach God. So that's where we see the symbolism of Joshua representing the Messiah who's to come, which when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that veil in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies, even though it was, what was it, 18 inches thick, was torn in two. So we have that same image that Zechariah is presenting to us here of Jesus entering into the holy holies. So what happens next? What's this got to do with you and me? Verse 6, Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my commandments, then you shall judge my house, and likewise you shall have charge of my courts, and I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. So God is calling his priests to represent him through obedience, but to represent him with a clean life, which is doing the things that God's ordered. And if he does those things, he says, look, then I need you to make decisions in, in my house. I need you to help the people decide what's right and wrong. And also, you're going to be judging as well. You need to take charge of my courts on spiritual matters. The way I, I look at it sometimes is like a, a spiritual boot camp where God is saying, look, you guys need to get ready because I've called you for something important and you've just taken it too lightly. Um, and it's like in the army where they have to break you down first so that they can build you up the right way because you have to be called at a second's notice to be able to follow a command because your life and the lives of the men in your company depend upon it. And that's what God's doing here. He's, he's breaking down Joshua in the same way he would want to break us down so he can build us up for service again. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into light. Verse 8. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, 
for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing my servant the branch. So we've seen accusation will come, um, adjustment will come, appointment will come, and now a savior will come. And what's really cool about this is that um, when he's saying here, you know, hey, here, Joshua, he's not saying, hey, listen to this, I got some stuff to tell you. He's saying, obey me. Be obedient to this point because something is about to break loose. And he's saying, your priests, your fellows, your colleagues, they are a sign. Actually, it says that they're looking for a sign. These men are wonder watchers. They're watching for the wonder that's yet to come. Who is that wonder that's yet to come? It is the branch. Who is that branch? Isaiah tells us it's Isaiah 11. And I don't think I'm going to get to that to read it to you, but it's a great chapter, so you've got to read Isaiah 11 when you go home tonight. Um, but it says that there will come a Messiah who is from the root of Jesse, stemming up like a branch. Um, and also talks in Isaiah 53 along the same lines, as you know already, of the suffering servant. So here he's actually saying these men are watching out for a wonder. You need to pay attention to what they're looking for and what's to come in the future. So we have that first coming, which is still further off. It's not Zerubbabel over here. It's going to be Jesus Christ, first coming. Jesus Christ, second coming. So what did Jesus, the Messiah, do for us? Verse 9. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity from the land in one day. And I thought this was a really weird verse. Like, okay, you got the stone and the stone's got seven eyes on it. God, what in the world are you talking about? But if you reference that, if, if you don't know something in the Bible, use the Bible to define the Bible. Um, so what I had to do was I needed to go to Revelation 5, verses 5 to 6, where earlier talks about um, the Lamb of God, and it says he has seven horns and seven eyes, and those seven eyes are the Spirit of God. So basically what it's saying here is another reference to Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ's deity, but it's adding now the influence of the Holy Spirit coming um, with the Messiah. Um, now, when I read this part about the stone, I thought, oh, yeah, a little stone, you know, and you skip it across the lake. That's a stone. And that's right. That's how it translates to stone. It also means like the stone when you build up a little altar together. Um, and it's the same word, cast the first stone, the harlot. It's that same word for stone. But I thought, you can't engrave on a little stone like that. They didn't have, you know, diamond encrusted engravers. So it's like maybe the stone needs to be bigger. So I kept reading. I found out that this same word for stone is like when they cut the stones in the quarry and there's no sound of the axe in the temple that it was all cut in the quarry. It means quarry stones as well. And I don't know if you've been to Jerusalem. Um, I had the fortune of going there two years ago and we went underneath the west wall and there is the great western stone which is 45 feet long 23 feet thick, 570 tons in weight before modern machinery. And the people still cannot figure out how they got this stone 
into the wall in Jerusalem at the temple. It's an amazing thing to see. Now, I looked at that, and I said, now there's something you can engrave upon. There's something you can get your hammer and your chisel out and knock out some words on. But if our stone was engraved, how was the chosen cornerstone that was rejected engraved? Any suggestions? They've engraved our cornerstone. Yeah, our cornerstone was engraved in his hands. He was engraved in his head with a crown of thorns. He was engraved with a sword in his side. Isaiah even says that our names are inscribed in the palm of his hands. It's in the shape of nail marks. This is what our God has done for us that we could live righteously. The seven eyes is the spirit of God and we get into more of the fulfillment in the next chapter in in Zechariah 4. It talks about, um, and the word of the Lord came to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So sometimes we try to do stuff on our own. We try to cleanse ourselves. We try to do God's work on our own. But he's saying, no, sorry, even that stinks before me. It has to be by the work of my Holy Spirit. So what we've been looking at tonight is how God's authority reigns with justice and mercy How can a just God allow a sinner to serve? He can do that because he wipes away that sin and unrighteousness himself. He can be both just and he can be merciful. So God rightly judges. He forgives justly. He reigns mercifully. So we see that accusation will come Adjustment will come, appointment will come, but most of all, a Savior has come. And a Savior will come again because it's been God's plan ever since the beginning for all eternity. So tonight, in closing, we'd just like to ask you to consider what are the accusations you hear? They're meant to destroy you but God wants to wipe those away. What is the guilt you still feel that God wants to remove for you tonight? When you come before him, what smell do you bring with you? Is a sweet, pleasing aroma? Or what appointment has you prepared you for that maybe you've ignored? You haven't wanted to get around to doing God's work there yet. Or what do you feel is holding you back from what you really feel God has called you to? Because me up here, I'm not a minister. I heard this today from a a fellow graduate, Chris Smirat. He goes, I'm an ad minister. I administer God's word. You guys are the ministers. You're the ones who are supposed to go out and do it. And you've probably heard that uh, shepherds don't have sheep, but sheep beget sheep. That means ministry lies in the hands of every one of you out there in the pews. 
And God's called you to his service. And that's what I want to encourage you in today. So let's go ahead and and pray and just thank the Lord for his word. Father God, thank you that you reign with mercy. Lord, that you're so kind, that you care about us. Lord, in that every desperate need we have here tonight, you've prepared something for mankind since the beginning of eternity. And Lord, we want to thank you for that and that you ready us to be of your service. Lord, that it's always your desire to refresh us with your costly love. It's always your desire to bring us to a renewed and refreshed repentance of our sins. And Lord, that you always want us to recommit ourselves to you again because you've called us to a higher purpose and calling than we ever really imagined or would give ourselves credit for. Father, so we thank you for your word and we glorify you in your name. Amen.